This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So Dan Lowenstein is the executive vice uh, chancellor and provost. I think that's sort of right. Uh, before we peel back and do your origin story, uh, tell us what that means and like what an average day in your professional life is like. Right. So uh, the executive vice chancellor and provost title is, um, it's got two pieces to it. An executive vice chancellor is someone who's working at the high level of the leadership team just under the chancellor. And provost, it's actually a term I didn't, I didn't even completely know what it meant three months into the job. But um, uh, the best way to describe what a provost is, is it's the person who is essentially the chief academic officer of an institution, of a university. And if you think about what the academy is, the academy exists for, with two main purposes. One is to train the next generation, and the other is to generate new knowledge. So the provost is responsible for those aspects of the institution, um, working with the deans and the chairs to carry out those aspects of the mission. Um, but importantly, in a place like UCSF, the provost is not responsible for the healthcare side of the work that we do here. So although um, I interact a lot with um, Mark Larratt, the CEO, and, and other folks on healthcare, that's not part of my responsibility. So it's re- education, the educational research arm of UCSF ultimately reports to you and your job is to make sure it all works. Right. Work, okay. Working with people like you. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, Give me an idea of an average day. What, what yeah, are the well, kinds? Know, is there no average no, day? No, there's no average day. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the delights, I think, of the kind of work that a lot of us get to do here, which is um, every day is different. Um, it's a combination of uh, uh, meetings, both in person, in person and Zoom, uh, talking about issues of space for departments of medicine and um, <laughs> uh, funding allocations, uh, uh, budgetary concerns, Issues that come up with faculty and students that need to be looked at, um, considerations of the promotions process, um, meetings uh, with uh, folks who have an interest in a new relationship with the institution, whether it's uh, another university, uh, a private entity, uh, someone with a philanthropic interest. Um, but I, uh, being a provost is only part of the work that I get to enjoy here um, every day because I still very much I'm committed to teaching, so I'm involved in teaching primarily in the School of Medicine, but some of the other schools. So that takes up a certain portion of a given week, depending on the week. And then I also am still actively engaged in the research that I do related to epilepsy. So I, a fair number of mostly teleconferences, uh, working with the team uh, that I'm part of uh, across the globe, working on the genetics of epilepsy. Great. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the the origin story. Tell us about where you were from and your upbringing and then how it, ex- it explains what you became. Right. And how much time do we have for this no, part? We'll give it five minutes or so. <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> right. So, yeah, this is a story that's pretty familiar to me. Um, I was uh, born uh, uh, in Baltimore um, and was graced with uh, being born to two parents who, um, mi- middle class family. Um, loving, intact family with a brother and a sister who are younger than, than I. And um, my parents escaped from Germany. And I think the sort of the, the lessons from early life uh, were the, you know, the value of freedom uh, and the importance of social justice and that my job as a, as a child was to um, take advantage of my education. Wow. So that's, that's, that was the word from the parents. Yeah. Um, I think that helped me from becoming what uh, could have been definitely a juvenile delinquent because I was fairly wild as a teenager. Um, like how wild? Like what, what was the what would be an example of the wildest? Uh, I, I can't go into some of the really? details, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think my soccer coach uh, Laszlo Naitri from Hungary was probably an important influence on keeping me straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, uh, I had, I, I, you know, I had a pretty idyllic upbringing. I was never really in need. I I uh, went to public schools. What did your parents do? My father uh, was a chemical engineer, and my mother was a social worker. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was, I, and I didn't really have any clear ambitions uh, uh, as a teenager, although I had a fantastic 
biology teacher uh, named Mr. B. Muller, uh, Mr. B as we called him. And he, uh, he was just, he's the best teacher I think I've ever encountered, uh, had a, a huge influence on me. And um, he used to come by every month, it seemed, and say, Dan, you've, you've got to go into the health professions uh, because he could see how much I love biology. And, and uh, I'd smile, but secretly to myself say, not in a million years. And the reason for that was when I was uh, in junior high school playing soccer, I, I uh, injured myself, came home. My mom, the social worker, looked at me and said, okay, I'll take you to the emergency room. And, and uh, what I remember from then is the ER doc or whoever it was coming out with the x-ray of my broken fibula mm-hmm. and laughing as he said, it looks like this is the end of your soccer season. Wow. And that left quite an impression um, because I can, I can truly say there was nothing that was farther from my interest uh, than having anything to do with the world of medicine. Um, so uh, if, you would have, if we would have been buddies in senior year of high school and you were asking me what's the likely you know, life path, I would have said either maybe being an astronaut, mm-hmm. still interesting to me, but, um, <laughs> but more likely being a wilderness guide. And that's because my best friend, Tim, Tim Miner, uh, who I met in high school, um, had taught me um, about the wilderness and the joy that comes from it. And that just became my life passion. So I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder for maybe pretty obvious reasons. Wildersy kind of place. Yes. uh, And I majored in math, um, majored in math because there are no afternoon labs. Mm -hmm. And that left me plenty of time to play. But again, because... Because of my parents, you know, I didn't completely screw up as an undergrad um, and got, you know, did reasonably well. And when I graduated uh, from Boulder, uh, still pretty clueless as to exactly so what I wanted. So you didn't decide you wanted to be pre-med while you were in college? Oh, no. No, it was, I mean, if, I, if, if we would have gone would through have a little list, on the list yeah. there would have only been one thing on the never in a million years list, and that yeah. was medicine. Wow. Um, and again, the outdoors was probably where I was heading forest ranger, maybe, outward bound instructor. Well, I um, noticed that you got a master's in man-environmental relations. Yeah. and Was that a thing, or you made that up as, uh, a, it was, as a major? It, it was a thing at, at Penn State University. So uh, when, after graduating from Boulder, um, I actually took a year to travel around the world, um, and so made some money over the summer, and then said goodbye to my parents in New Jersey and said, I'm going to keep heading east until I'm home again. Uh-huh. And uh, it, I, I have to say that was probably the most important educational year of my entire life was to travel around the world by myself. What would you learn? That uh, the world is an um, incredibly diverse place where people um, live in, in, in so many, uh, have so many different forms of experience and that there are many, many, many people who um, do not have the, the, the resources, the freedom, um, the opportunity that we have at a place uh, like here. And there's not a day that goes by where uh, you know, I turn on a faucet and um, don't think about the, the fact that the water that we have is you know, something that um, is safe and is available. So... Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I came back, did, my, uh, uh, did a master's degree in man-environment relations. My thesis was actually on the use of the wilderness environment as an educational tool for institutionalized juvenile delinquents. Wow. Um, so an outward-bound type of application. And, um, and then I, uh, again, pretty, pretty much clueless after then. So now I'm in my early 20s. Doing things, but then you, you hit that cluelessness. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I mean, I, maybe I was going to start up some kind of consulting firm or something about wilderness education. Yeah. I went back to, uh, went back to Denver, and um, uh, my friends, including Tim, we were getting together one day to start planning a pretty significant climbing expedition down through Central and South America. And uh, we were looking at the maps and making up our lists of equipment. And the group, we were drinking some beers, and the group sort of said, you know, we, we probably should have some more first aid training. And they all looked at me and volunteered me for an EMT course. Oh, good. <laughs> and they volunteered me because I was the only one without a job. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and so I took this six-week uh, course. And uh, uh, 
this is relevant to the to to where you're where you're going in terms of how I found medicine because I have two very very distinct what we call flashbulb memories of that course the six week course and the first was on the third day of the course there was a a paramedic um, ambulance Denver ambulance driver mm-hmm. who was our teacher and he was teaching us about the physiology of breathing and. Um, Mind you, you know, I had taken Mr. B. Muller's biology course. I had taken one biology course at Boulder because I assiduously avoided anything else that had to do with pre-med. Mm-hmm. And if you would have asked me, Dan, so how exactly do we breathe? I didn't know. <laughs> I couldn't have, I mean, you know, is there some kind of whirring apparatus down there that sucks in the air? I don't know. But when the, when the paramedic drew on the board, you know, the cross-section of the human thorax with the diaphragm and the lungs and the bronchi and the trachea and the oropharynx. And he explained that when we take in a breath, the dome diaphragm flattens and the intercostal muscles contract in a way that the rib cage expands. And the space inside the thorax increases in volume. And with that, there's a decrease in pressure. I mean, I know this is stuff that we all know. Negative pressure is hard to get your mind around. Yeah. (laughs) And that air passively moves from the outside in to the base of the lungs. Something something happened. I mean, the beauty, um, the mystery, the elegance, it just, uh, something happened. Well, it strikes me as the analog of I turn this faucet on and, and water comes out. It's sort of as you understand how complex that is and the number of things that have to happen to make that work, it becomes remarkable. It was, it was extraordinary for me. So I didn't quite know what was happening, but the second, the second memory was about four weeks in the course. We had to do this vo- two volunteer shifts in the emergency room. And so I was petrified when they gave me the scrubs and you know, I, they parked me in the corner of the room and there was all this activity going on in the emergency room. <laughs> And this doctor, clearly a doctor wearing a white coat, was working on this old lady who had fallen on a glass coffee table, and she had a very deep uh, laceration in her forearm. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was doing a two-level suture, and, and he, he pointed to me and said, hey, are you the EMT student? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, come over here. I want to show you something. And he had, a, you know, she was comfortable. He had anesthetized her and, uh, locally. And, and, and he, as I got up there, he took a forceps, and he pulled back the flap of skin and had her move her fingers, and I saw her tendons move. And I decided then and there to become an ambulance driver. <laughs> and I kid you not. I mean, that's actually, that's the honest to God truth. Wow. That was, it suddenly, it all came together that medicine was, or something related to healthcare, um, driving ambulances in Denver would be the coolest thing, and it just seemed to fit what I wanted to do. And and to finish this, this story, um, we went on the climb. Uh, it went, the climbs, it went well. And about after over three months of travel, I was, ha- just had a lot of time to think. And though I didn't think I'd be capable of getting into medical school, I, I, by the end of the trip, I was pretty sure that I wanted to become a physician. And then I spent a month uh, volunteering in L'Hospital General in La Paz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took me in, and I had a chance to see what doctors do, from the emergency room to... Uh, the uh, operating room, to going on rounds, um, to going on ambulance uh, rides. And by the end of that month, there was absolutely no question, no question that this is what I wanted to do in life. And I, I, you know, I, I've told this story a bunch of times to, to actually to a lot of students in pre-med. And the reason it's so important to me um, is that as I think about the hard work that, we've, that we all do in the world of medicine, um, it's, it's a hard path, but I can tell you with complete, absolute certainty that in the 40 years since um, that experience, I have never, ever questioned that this is what I've wanted to do with my life, and um, not, not, not once, and that's what I think has been so sustaining despite how hard the work is. Well, it's also remarkable as I looked at your career, it's, sort of un- it's extraordinary in its breadth. So you didn't really just become a doctor. You became a doctor and a scientist and an advocate and an administrator, leader. So were there hints of that in your upbringing and the things you... I, I saw a little bit of that in your parents, or the scientist and the social worker and somehow morphing that in, in you. But sort of what explains, what explains the breadth? How did you decide to get into science, which I guess was probably the first 
part of, of that? Um, well, I, I should say that, you know, during the first days of showing up at medical school, um, I think I was like the vast majority of other students I've known over the years, and that is I had, you know, imposter syndrome to the nth degree. Um, and my plan, I, I, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do starting, at, starting in medical school, which is I wanted to become the family, family doctor in Sandwich, New Hampshire, mm. because that's where Tim lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew that the family doctor there was getting on. And uh, the timing would just, just felt, it just felt like it was going to work out. So, you are a planner. Yeah. yeah. So, so no, my, my plan was to do primary care at Harvard Medical School. And, um, and, and honestly, again, like I think most students, um, really what was going on inside my mind during orientation week in those first couple of weeks of school was, um, Lord, just get me to the end with that MD. And, and it, it will be enough, Dianu, as yeah, they right, say. Right. Um, um, but, uh, but then, the, but then medical school started and, and I, I realized, uh, that there's, there's a universe of activity that takes place beyond just the learning of the, you know, the knowledge and practice of, of being a skilled physician. And, um, I was surprised by that. I certainly wasn't counting on any of that. Uh, but, uh, first year we got involved in international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war, uh, a, uh, a movement that had its roots in Boston, led by uh, Bernard Lown and Chris Cassell, who I know you've interviewed. And uh, um, a number of us got very involved in IPPNW and the work that was going on to um, try to help our nations understand the health effects of nuclear war. So the, that, to me, was a bit of an extension of the, some of the things I had been involved in in college um, related to the apartheid and, and other um, uh, social justice movements. And then I discovered the world of, of, of biomedical research, mm-hmm. which also caught me by surprise. Um, I, I definitely did not think that that was going to be part of my path, uh, but medical school influenced me in, in seeing that uh, if we don't do research, if we don't advance knowledge, then the care of the patients that we take care of every day will simply not change. Mm-hmm. And that passion definitely took Took root, um, took uh, got fired up by just the more and more experience of actually taking care of patients. And, and, I'm, and why epilepsy? Uh, can't fully explain that. That's like saying, you know, why do you like ballet over symphony? The symphony. Um, I, there's something about the nature of the suffering of patients with epilepsy that that reaches deep inside me, um, and um, I, I I'm drawn to um, the, the, the type of, of issues that, they, that patients face and their families. And then it's connected to you know, the nervous system, which, mm-hmm. again, for reasons I can't fully explain, I find fascinating and intriguing, and I, I love to try to understand. Yeah, I think your first big scientific uh, endeavor was in Stan Prusner's lab, yeah. Nobel Prize winner, an interesting guy. So yeah. what did you learn from Stan? Yeah, that was, so that was interesting because um, you know, I knew I wanted to do epilepsy research once I became a resident. And uh, that work is traditionally electrophysiology and, you know, and electricity of the brain. And um, Stan was one of our faculty in attendings. And he um, met with me over lunch. And he gave me a great piece of advice. And that is he he said, you know, if you really want to try to have an impact on, on the world of epilepsy, you should try to go into an area that's not receiving enough attention right now, and that's molecular biology and genetics. And this was at a time when, you know, very little was being done in, that, uh, in, in those domains within epilepsy. And he said, you know, if you want to really learn the cutting-edge techniques of those um, uh, areas of science, you should come in my lab, um, and, uh, which was great advice. And I spent two years doing a postdoc with him. I kept asking to do some epilepsy-related projects um, that would be uh, uh, relevant to prion diseases. He would not let me do that. Hmm. Um, but after my postdoc... Because he, th- he really thought the best thing for your training was to really focus on this work and not get too much uh, in the apprenticeship model of your, of your clinical yeah, field? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, I was working in his lab, and he was not interested in epilepsy or... Uh, even though there is something of a connection between prion diseases and seizures. And in retrospect, he was right. I wasn't completely happy with, mm-hmm. with that limitation. 
Um, but then I, then I sort of launched out on my own, and I was given lab space and some uh, modest startup funding and got some early grants uh, and uh, did laboratory research in epilepsy for... One, one more stand question. Uh, he, he had not won the Nobel no. when you were there. No. Was there a hint that this was something that was destined for... I mean, what he's done has been legendary and transformative. Yeah, I mean, we, we were, uh, you know, I was there with uh, uh, Karen, uh, Karen Shaw and David Borschelt and just uh, Dale Bredesen, just a whole crew of people, and we were saying these were the halcyon times. I mean, the work was getting very, very, very exciting, and, and Stan is an incredibly careful scientist, so despite all the um, uh, challenges he faced from the naysayers yeah. and the press, um, he was careful, and he proved to be right. Right. I'm going to talk about your life as an educator. You've won pretty much every education award there is to win around here and from some other places. Uh, what are your tips to be a great yeah, teacher? Yeah, that's an easy one. Um, right. it's, it, it is an easy one. Um, I, I, I don't mean to be so flip about it, but um, I, I, to me, the, the, the absolute centerpiece of 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 being an effective teacher is to love your students. It's to, it's to, you know, be able to be with them and be part of their experience and to look at them and see them as a, as a true colleague, as an, as an equal in, you know, in, in, in essence, you know, to understand the differences that we bring to the table. Um, uh, you know, I probably know a bit more about Neurology than my my students do, um, but they know so much more about so many other aspects of of the world. They, you know the life experience that they bring in, and I really I really respect that, and I trust that uh, their showing up every day is because we share this commitment to serving the patients that come to us, and so that you know that feeling of respect for students and trust in their intent. I mean, trust and respect are the essence of love. And so um, that's what I feel towards students. So if you, if you have that internally, then you're really motivated to work hard as a teacher and you know, try to understand you know, who your audience is when you're giving a lecture if, or where people are in their perspective when you're at the bedside with a, with a patient. So, yeah. So, yeah, I've been asked that question a number of times, and I, I must say, I, I mean, there's all kinds of other things that yeah, I could say about, you know, how you should organize a lecture or, you know, I feel that, you know, I, if I am giving a presentation to a group of students for an hour, if there's, like, one thing that they might remember um, a year later, it's been an unusual success mm-hmm. uh, for me. For me. So... Um, so, and there are all kinds. I think there are all kinds of mistakes that we that that are pretty sophomoric that that teachers make that we all know as students, like you know, death by PowerPoint, and you know, um, <laughs> I, you know, one of my favorites is um, starting off a lecture as a teacher and saying, "Now, I don't know if you've covered this before, but I wanted to talk today about," and that just it's a killer start, right? Because you're already saying in the first couple of words that you haven't taken the time to find out what, where your learners are in their learning. And that can be completely flipped around by saying, now I understand that you had what, I, what I've heard is a really fantastic lecture from Dr. Wachter last week. And he covered the following topics. And because of that, I'm, I'd like to build on that with you today and explore the following. And boom, you've, you know, you've, it, actually that's an unusual experience as a typical student in lecture to hear that from the teacher and then you're actually, it's almost a trick because you're, you're actually getting the student's attention that you otherwise might not get. So I have lots of tips like that, but the core is you have to love your students. One of the things that I think it characterizes your teaching and your leadership, I have, I have a daughter in medical school, so I've sort of seen this and heard it from her vantage point, is you're very accessible and very informal, and that's true in your leadership as well. When you read your newsletter, it's, it's movie tips as well as new research buildings. Uh, how do you think about that, and how have you been able to maintain that as you've risen up the hierarchy and, in some ways, the distance between where you live and your professional day-to-day life is greater than it might have been when you were a junior faculty member? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Bob. Um, and, it's, and, 
you know, I think we've shared some thoughts on this in the past, and I think it's worth um, sharing with uh, with all of you. It's interesting. I, I I can't I can't not be myself um, in in these in these roles. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I, I haven't had I, I haven't had the internal sort of choice of saying okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be different than I feel that I'm gonna I am. take on more gravitas because yeah. that's the right way to be today. Yeah, yeah. I just can't do that. I yeah. mean, um, so so I've had to contend with that and. Um, it's, it's turned out it's, it seems to have been okay because I think, related to what I said before, I really do think of all of you as my colleague, uh, my colleagues. So, so I want to try to relate as, as colleagues and to you know, um, respect the perspectives that we all bring. Um, but there is a problem that I've discovered, and it really was mostly in becoming provost. So that happened now four and a half years ago, and... And the problem is, is that with a title like provost, similar to being a chair or, or any leadership position, it just gets more magnified mm-hmm. the higher up you go. Um, the title in itself conveys a certain amount of, of, of power um, in the form of decision-making, control of resources, and influence over other people's lives. And what I didn't realize early on in becoming provost is that I couldn't just be Dan when someone walks into my office. And I, I, in, in that, I couldn't, I couldn't say to them, listen, just relate to me as a fellow colleague. Because no matter how much I would like that to be part of the relationship, the people coming in my office, they're coming into the provost's office. Mm-hmm. And it is true that if they irritate me in some way, it might not serve them well. <laughs> As opposed to irritating Dan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we all know, we all, you know, it's really funny to talk about this because we all know this experience because we've worked with people who are above us who, I'm sure you've all had this, who we actually basically don't like, right? They're just not very nice people or the chemistry is not there or whatever. But because they have power over you, when you go into their office and talk to them, you behave nicely, and, and you're not even necessarily hinting, you know, what's sort of, you know, sort of lying behind these eyes. And so I, I've, I've had to get, I've really had to, to get used to that. And so the way, the way that I've thought about it now is I have to honor the title. I have to honor that title and somehow create a balance between making sure that I recognize that people see me as someone who has a, a place of influence but at the same time, hopefully, as, as approachable as I can make it under the circumstances. Right. Yeah. Maybe one more question about the educational part of you, and then we'll turn to sort of issues that you're dealing with every day and we're all dealing with. Um, Academy of Medical Educators, you, yeah. were, you had a leadership role in it here. You spent some time at Harvard where you had a leadership role there. What, what was the idea, and has it played out in the way that you hoped? Yeah, so now we're going back to the late 1990s, um, and there was a... Uh, a process put in place by uh, David Irby at the time um, where he wanted to think about new approaches for education in the School of Medicine. And he did a very wise thing. He created two uh, task forces. One was called the Greener Pastures Task Force. That was led by Molly Cook. And the other was called the Blue Sky Task Force. And I had the honor to chair that. And it was a very clever approach because the, the Greener Pastures group was meant to do more evolutionary type thinking. So take what we currently have and make it better. And the blue sky was to you know, blow everything up. And so it was great for us on blue sky because we didn't have to worry about the overall outcome of the process because something good was going to come out of the two committees. So we were, we were completely unshackled. So we got to think about anything that we wanted. So um, uh, we generated a whole bunch of, of, of thoughts. But I, I, I started getting drawn into what I think was uh, a core problem of our approach to education, and that is that the very structure of our medical school was not conducive to elevating the education mission to the extent that it should. And I mean truly the structure of the way we have departments and how resources flow. And what I felt was that as long as the money that comes in centrally for education gets dispersed purely to the department chairs, that the chair's motivation to use that funds 
for education is going to be um, altered by the other needs that you deal with day in and day out. And so no surprise that you'll use those funds, even though they're earmarked for education, in quotes. Um, uh, you may actually give them to the faculty member who is a very good teacher, but an even better scientist. And that investment is going to lead to a potential Nobel Prize or more grants, or to the busy clinician who's also a teacher but needs that percent support. Um, and so th- I think the whole system was, uh, was constructed in a way that would not uh, allow for the advancement of education to the degree we needed. So I, I just I came up with the idea. I just said, uh, with, I was sitting at home one day. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, how could we alter the structure? Well, let's actually create an entirely new entity in the school that is not a department that has its own funding stream and has control over those dollars. And that led to the idea of the academy. And we were lucky because Haile DeBass was the uh, dean at the School of Medicine at the time. Haile was prepared to give a $20 million um, investment in education taken from the endowment. He had, he had identified it and was bringing it to a leadership retreat. And the plan was to give that $20 million to the chairs to decide how they would like to use the money. But with the presentation of the academy concept, the chairs volunteered to give that money directly to the academy, which to me was an incredible uh, 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 act on their part. Um, And that led then to essentially the start of the academy. Great. Uh, So I'll throw out just some big issues. Just love to hear you react to them. Mission Bay and Parnassus, sort of the evolution of Mission Bay as a thing, and then what it's meant for life at Parnassus, and what do you think it needs to mean for the future of Parnassus? Yeah, well, this is definitely a leading question. Of course. uh, (laughs) Because Bob knows so well that uh, the the challenge of of the Parnassus campus was probably one of the biggest things that that hit my desk when I started out as provost um, four and a half years ago. Um, And to, to frame this briefly... Um, I, I believe that we, have, we are in the midst of what I've called the third existential crisis uh, of UCSF's recent history anyway. And so you should be asking what were the first two. Um, the first one... Which we've obviously survived. We've, we've survived, <laughs> that's right. Um, the first one was in the, in the mid-1960s when uh, the leadership of, uh, at UCSF, I, I w- we weren't there at the time, but I understand that the leadership was very concerned about our status as a university. And almost nobody knows this. I only know it by talking to some of the folks who were there. But we were a totally second-rate institution at that time. Oh, yeah. Second-rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know it in this series because my first interview was with Holly Smith while he was alive. And Holly Smith was the perpetrator of the coup. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I'm telling you, folks, if you had children... And they were talking about going to medical school, and they were giving you their list, and they mentioned UCSF, you would say, I expect you to do much better than that. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's hard to believe because of what, you know, why you're here. But it is the truth. We were a second-rate institution. And people like Holly Smith and others had this extraordinary vision for what we could be, and they invested in this tsunami that was taking place on the East Coast called molecular biology. And they brought people like Gordon Tompkins, Bill Rudder, um, Mike Bishop, and, and many more. And that, that essentially established the beginning of the greatness of this institution. And what blows me away is that that was in 1967, 68. I applied for residency in neurology in 1983, and this was my first choice because it was one of the best programs in the world. That's, that's 15 fast. years. So um, that, that put us sort of in the pantheon of great institutions. And then the second crisis was in the mid-1990s when we realized that in order to continue on this vector of greatness, uh, we had a problem. That is, we had run out of space. And we ran out of space because basically the main campus was Parnassus, and we had an agreement with the neighbors through a regental policy that we would limit the space on this campus. And it was a very, very strict space cap. So there was no opportunity for building more research buildings here. So we then went through 
you know, and I, I can remember these debates. I do too. Uh, quite well, um, sort of the the the, uh, the the arguments and the and the noshing over, you know, what should we do? And I think Alameda was a potential spot at one point. Alameda, we were going to have like fifty hydroplanes we were going to own. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was all sorts of ideas. But we eventually, you know, invested in this sinkhole that we call Mission Bay, mm-hmm. and through a deal with the city, we were able to get the land and. And again, the rest is history. So that, that commitment was made in the there late... there was nothing at Mission Bay nothing. at the time. Nothing. Uh, the yeah. Giants ballpark was beginning to be an idea, but it was a basically warehouse, yep. decrepit district in the yep. city. Yep. And so uh, that was in the late 1990s. And again, you know, let's, let's go forward, you know, 20 years, Mission Bay has become this, you know, a, a spectacular site for so many of the things that we do. So because of that, you know, the third crisis is, has been in the last five to seven years... Uh, when our faculty located here see this gem of a campus down at Mission Bay with more and more effort going into the, you know, the research uh, enterprise there, more core facilities, more students wanting to be down there because that's where the labs are, um, uh, and just feeling as though we've become second-rate ourselves. And so I, I really heard this uh, deeply from our faculty, and you know, you and I have had many conversations about it, and I think it has been a crisis. Um, there were faculty who um, understandably were getting to the point where they couldn't see how they could sustain their work here unless they could move to Mission Bay, but we don't have the space to move them there. And then the leadership, um, Sam, le- leading us, we made a very important strategic decision, and that is that um, part of our future over the coming decades is to con- is to not just sustain but grow the research, clinical, and education enterprise here in Parnassus. So that then has led to some major planning and, and now commitments to uh, a whole new vision for the campus. And in a few weeks, you'll be hearing about the final report of what we call the Comprehensive Parnassus Heights Plan, which uh, has what we think are some really exciting ideas for the way this campus will evolve. Great. I'll ask you about another big change over time, which is the massive expansion of the health system uh, in volume, in, in some ways in its relative place in the universe of, of clinical care, research, and education. It's, uh, you know, where do the dollars come from? Mostly from clinical delivery. And the health system as an entity is no longer in just UCS of own places, but increasingly distributed and patients are going to be getting more and more care in their homes and in community kinds of practices. How do you think the health system is not exactly under you, but its influences are profound for the research and educational enterprise? Yeah, well, it's, and and I should just add in full transparency, it's not an area of expertise for me. So I've, I've not spent my career involved in, in, in clinical administration virtually to any extent other than overseeing you know, the division of uh, the epilepsy center within the Department of Neurology. Um, But I, I, you know, I think there is a vital codependency um, of the two sides of the house, if you will. Um, I think that we we should take on um, the provision of higher level care to the extent possible because we're so good at it and we are able to offer, you know, I mean, how many patients have you taken care of um, in which you can truly say um, we're, we're providing the best that, that medicine has to offer. I mean, we offer that each and every day here. And so I think um, having the uh, source of those patients through the primary care practices that we need, it's just part of the, the model of medical care. Um, I'm really depending on people like you and, and Mark Larratt and others to you know, lead us, but I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's a necessary ongoing relationship. It, and there's a balance point that I think has always been difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I actually can't tell whether it's more difficult now than it was 10 or 20 years ago because I I've, didn't understand it back then. Not necessarily more difficult, but the degree to which the role of leaders who do have roles in all three parts of the enterprise have shift, has shifted much more toward making the clinical trains run on time than I think probably was true 30 years ago. Yeah. And so there's always that, just as you say, when you're thinking about the academy, <clears throat> as you think about the three missions and trying to keep them in balance, the growth of the health system and the importance of making it work well for patients 
uh, and the dependence on it as the economic engine that fuels the other two, I think, has shifted over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it is what it is. We, you know, it, it's sort of you can't say we don't want to do that because we want to focus on these other two parts of the mission because, A, we have to to be competitive in the market and, 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 and it's what patients need. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it, does, it does change the dynamic as you sort of think about trying to get all three missions Correct and blended in the right way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, it, it, I agree. It's it's a challenge. I, you know, on uh, related to that, I think you know almost every day I hear about decisions that are made that uh, are meant to try to protect the you know the, the the creation the creative parts of what we do here in terms of research and and supporting education. I mean, you know, we could if we wanted, uh, you know, make the decision to turn into you know an institution like the Mayo Clinic or or the Cleveland Clinic, um, um, they're known for, uh, I think, upholding the clinical mission more than the other two. I don't think we want to be like that. And I, I think that the decisions that we make influence that direction. Uh, one or two more questions, and I'll open it up. Um, your focus on diversity and, and equity and social justice, obviously a critical part of you as a person. Um, how does it play out in your day-to-day job? There must be times where there are tensions around those values and everything else going around you. It seems like it's something that you focus on like a laser. And, and so uh, you've talked, talked a little bit about where it comes from, but how do you make it real and how do you think it's going? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really motivated uh, about this issue because um, I, I think that the... the, the, the I feel that the greatest tragedy of 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 our existence uh, as humans um, is that we continue to judge one another from you know these superficial characteristics you know from a distance we we look at someone and we see the color of their skin or the sort of the the, the, um, the way their body looks or whether or not they they appear to be um, able or not, um, and, the, and the idea that we use th- these most superficial characteristics that then make judgments that then have such an impact on privilege and, and um, you know, the systemic aspects that that um, places into our society. Um, to me, that's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the greatest tragedy. And so I can't, I can't uh, not think about that in the work that we do here, because you know, not only is it a global problem, but it also influences what we do each and every day. And you know, uh, starting with the patients that we take care of. So our ability to provide the very best care is um, contingent on our looking at our patients as um, you know full human beings and not not being judged for these superficial characteristics. So it's it is a passion of mine. Um, uh, there are many. Uh, things that all of us, I think, uh, have the opportunity to do, beginning with the educational programs that we provide. So I'm in full support and and am involved in the work that's going on in the different schools. I think the Differences Matters uh, uh, work that's happening in the School of Medicine is spectacular, and it's been supported by resources uh, from within the, within the school. I think that the uh, the Office of Diversity and Outreach, uh, led by Renee Navarro, has done a very, very good job of doing uh, training uh, more broadly across all the schools. And, um, and I think we're really beginning to have an impact on our, on our uh, hiring practices. I, I've, I'm seeing this mostly at the faculty and leadership level. And I can tell you, just recently, we've gone through a process of uh, looking for leadership um, positions uh, for the campus. And I've, been, I've participated directly in those, and I've been... Uh, very, very pleased to see how uh, this perspective that is emphasizing the importance of of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as being part of the the um, the approach that candidates uh, will take in their work is being seen as uh, as part of the excellence that we you know that we're looking for in terms of folks. So, so uh, hiring practices, the educational system. Um, uh, Bringing in speakers, uh, uh, Renee's office and myself, um, are, you know, try to make sure that we have forums, we have teach-ins. 
I think these are all. I think I think uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, one of my favorite quotes is that is from uh, Dr. King. You know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so I feel as though you know we're 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 putting pressure on that arc in in the right direction. But there's you know there's so much more to do. Um, uh, the optimist would say that there's no question that things are better here now than 50 years ago in so many ways. Um, the other perspective would say, just look what's happening in our society right now. And uh, in my lifetime, it's never been worse when mm-hmm. it comes to the divisiveness mm-hmm. uh, and the abject racism that, has, that is threatening to become a new norm, uh, a new normal. Um, but I, but I'm, I, I'm encouraged that over the longer time frame, we're we're definitely making progress. Um, so I was curious. It sounds like in your early days in medical school, you were involved in a lot of physician advocacy with like the against nuclear war and what the role of trainees and physicians are in um, advocating for some of the things we're seeing in the world right now and how, like how you think physicians can most create the most impact. Right. So um, in in medical school. Uh, the time that I devoted to those various issues was mostly during the first two years when it was the classroom-based teaching. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we put in a, just a, a ton of time into it, um, probably to the point where it was sort of the balance with, with, with studying was getting a bit threatened. And I do remember quite well. I mean, so it was, it was, it was very f- fulfilling work. But I do remember nearing the end of second year and getting ready for my uh, clinical Rotations, getting advice from 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 a mentor, a faculty mentor, because I remember going to him. Uh, Jim Muller was his name, a cardiologist, and I said, Jim, you know, I can't separate myself from the work that we're doing for IPP and W. You know, th- we've got all kinds of things happening next year. What do you think I should do? And he said, I'll never forget. The, he said, Dan, you have to be like a submarine. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he said, your job now is to go under the surface and just focus in on your clerkships and become the best physician you possibly can. And don't worry, we'll be working on things above water. Uh, there'll be things for you to work on when you, when you resurface. <laughs> but your job is to just, you know, just go under. And it was really good advice because I think our ability to be advocates in, in the areas that we're interested in outside of medicine is partly related to the level of respect that you receive as a physician, um, which is also linked to your ability to be a leader. Uh, so I, you know, I would recommend, I, I would give the same advice to a busy intern or resident that you know, pick your battles, but be really careful about uh, overcommitting at this time in your training, because your job right now is to learn how to become the very best healer you possibly can. And uh, that's going to set you up for so much more opportunity in the future. Your demeanor has always been quite impressive, and and yet there are times that we do need to go out and have a beer, or talk with people, or complain, or bang the counter. And I'm I'm interested in how you, how how do you do that with exercise or? Yeah, uh, again, pretty easy to answer. Thank you, uh, Rich. Um, so first of all, I exercise every day. I could probably count on one hand the number of days I've missed per year. Um, just part of my routine. Um, uh, I, have a, I have a hobby. It's a very strange one, but it gives me great delight. I really love flying radio-controlled things. So, um, and that's mostly planes and gliders. And actually, the Bay Area is a great place for, for gliders in particular because the winds come off of the Pacific, and you can go out to the headlands. And I, I, I really like building. You know, I probably have 40 planes. And... Um, and uh, you know, you just throw them off uh, and using the wind just like the birds do, and you can fly them for hours. And, and what I really love about it is when I'm flying that plane, I am not thinking about anything else because the only thing that you have to think about or you should think about is keeping that plane in the air. So I, I love that focus, so that's been fun. But my real passion is the wilderness still, and uh, so I, um, I take the time to go out, and in fact, tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a plane uh, uh, to go to Quebec City. Uh, and this is a plane with engines, though. Plane with engines. Okay, good. That's right. <laughs> I'm getting on a plane. There's going to be another pilot. Um, 
uh, and Tim, my, my best friend from New Hampshire, and his wife and son, Tommy, are going to be picking me up tomorrow morning in Quebec City. And we're going to drive about 18 hours to um, somewhere up on the border of northern Quebec and Labrador. And um, we've picked out a two-week route. Um, we'll go on, take uh, two canoes and, and um, go on a canoe adventure. And um, I, I, I can't fully put into words just how much I love that experience, but it has something to do with being, um, being brought into the, to the rhythm of life outdoors, completely detached from all the other stuff that we encounter every day. And, and that rhythm of waking up in the morning, making breakfast, loading up the canoe, paddling, have lunch, paddle, um, make camp, cook dinner, clean the pots, um, read in the tent, go to sleep, wake up. Doing that, especially for more than four or five days, you then get into this. It's just a whole, whole different world that um, I just, uh, I've always loved. Last question uh, for me, which is when you give your pitch to UCSF when you're trying to recruit someone, what do you say and take away that we're great in research and terrific doctors and wonderful educators? What, what do you think the secret sauce for this place is? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, I, do, I do this pitch fairly often now. And, sure. and um, <laughs> oh, oh, this is going to be recorded so people will know. Oh, yes. yeah, but what I say is we shouldn't be good as we are. We actually shouldn't, on paper, we actually should not be as good as we are. Because, you know, because here we are among the most elite, you know, we're in this group. You'll never hear me say that UCSF is the best. Um, but I do believe that we are in that group, that small group, that should consider themselves the best. But compared to our peer institutions, we actually shouldn't be as good as we are because we're a public institution, so we don't have near the resources that many of our peers have. Um, we don't have a football team. <laughs> which means we don't have anything like the alumni base and the commitment to an institution. You know, if you start your first day at Harvard or Stanford or a number of other places, you, there's a, more of a commitment over the long run, whereas we don't get the same thing from our students and our, and our residents. Um, so there's that. And, you know, we've struggled with lack of space for a period of time and, and, and other, other reasons for limited resources. So we shouldn't be as good. But why are we? And the secret sauce is, I think, the amazing um, caring for one another. Uh, not that the other institutions lack that, but the degree that we have it, I think, is extraordinary. And you know, my, my, my best example is that if you and I are walking down the hall you know, and we see one another, and you say, hey, Dan, how's it going? I really believe that you really mean the question. And it's not just a sort of, I, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do to be nice, but that we actually care. So I, and I see, that, I see that every single place that I turn when I uh, interact with folks at UCSF. Great. Well, you are a living example of that. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank really you. Great. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.